You've certainly heard about imposter syndrome. Perhaps you've struggled with it a bit yourself, maybe even pointed it out to others. On this episode, why it's rarely just about the individual and what managers can do to end it. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 556. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A conversation that comes up pretty regularly for me with listeners and members is around the topic of imposter syndrome. I know many of us have heard this term over the years. Some of us have felt imposter syndrome, but what we often don't have a clear view of is what can we do once we're feeling it, but also perhaps more importantly, if we are managing someone who is perhaps experiencing or feeling like they're experiencing imposter syndrome. Today, I'm so glad to have an expert with us who will help us to really frame our thinking around imposter syndrome and also help us to perhaps bring an end to it a bit within our organization. I'm so glad to introduce to you Jody Ann Burry. She is a sought-after speaker and writer who works at the intersections of race, culture, and health equity. Her TED Talk, The Myth of Bringing Your Full Authentic Self to Work, embodies her disruption of traditional narratives about racism at work. Jodi Ann is also the creator and host of Black Cancer, a podcast about the lives of people of color through their cancer journeys. She is the author, with Ruchika Tolshayan, of two recent Harvard Business Review articles, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome and End Imposter Syndrome in Your Workplace. Jodi Ann, what a pleasure to meet you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me here. Uh, the, the pleasure is mine. And as I am thinking about this term imposter syndrome, of course, we've all heard it, but I don't necessarily know if everyone has thought about what it means. And when you think about imposter syndrome, how do you define this term? Yes. And so I'm so glad that we're starting here because imposter syndrome was first coined in the late 1970s and it was first termed imposter phenomenon. How it became a phenomenon, which is something you would arguably observe that's happening to how we know it today as a syndrome. You know, I have my ideas about that on how we like to give fake medical diagnoses to women when they're experiencing (laughs) chronic sexism, but you know, that's neither here nor there, but imposter syndrome is defined as not having an internal sense of your own success. So despite the accomplishments that you might have, any accolades, anything that an outsider would obviously say, wow, Jodi Ann is so successful. Dave is so successful. You do not feel that internally. So you're doubting yourself. You feel like you're a fraud. In the original study, you know, women commented on, you know, maybe I only got into this graduate program because there was a clerical error in my application or, you know, maybe my boss thinks I'm hot or something, you know, not really feeling like you're smart enough. And so there comes with it this fear that you're going to be outed, that you'll be found out to be not as smart not as great, not as um, successful as people think you are. 
So, I mean, it's, it's pretty damaging to say the least. And when it was first coined, it's observed among women who were quote unquote high achieving. I'm putting like actual air quotes now as I'm talking to you, because what I want to call into question there is who gets defined as high achieving. I think for women and women of color, we deem success to mean that you're in more white, more male environments. And I think at least in the United States, but in places around the world, if you're part of an underrepresented or undervalued identity group, that if you are more like or in spaces of the dominant group, then that means that you quote unquote got out, you're successful. And so I think that dynamic wasn't explored as much. And that's the type of thinking and mindset shifting we're trying to do in this article and in the subsequent work to think more about that context versus, okay, I, as an individual, I just don't feel smart. I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like I belong. I feel like I'm a fraud. That's one of the things I really appreciated about both of the articles is that it moves beyond, I think, the traditional advice I've heard about imposter syndrome, which is almost always directed at the individual. You know, here's what you can do to change. Here's what you can do to reframe. And it really looks at it from the standpoint of the manager in the organization. And my sense in both past experiences of having run into this a bunch and also conversations is that managers in many organizations tend to address the symptoms of what we call imposter syndrome, but not necessarily the source. I was wondering if maybe you could illuminate that distinction for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it starts even in the language, right? When we think of who do we call imposters, they're individuals who are lying, individuals who are criminally fraudulent, right? You are doing something wrong. You, individual, you are the imposter. And then we talk about syndrome, again, like this medical sensibility to it. And what is wrong with you? What's going on internally with you, right? And we treat health that way too. What are you eating? What are you not doing while you're sick versus thinking about environmental racism as an example that puts more polluted factories and plants and um, different industries in predominantly poor and predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And so we look at the individual to say, you have asthma, you're not doing the right thing versus, hey, I've put my chemical plant here for the past 50 years and that's creating a poor air quality that leads to your asthma. So I think even in the language itself, it directs us to think about individuals versus looking at the whole system, the context, the um, broader context of the problem. I think that's what we've lost in this transition from phenomenon to syndrome. I also think that it's much easier to feel like I'm one person. I can do something about it. The context of sexism, racism, ableism, ageism feels too big, too heavy I can't affect that. I can't affect how that happens in our society. I can't affect how that's happening in this organization or in this department. So I can only look at what I can do and what I can control. Unfortunately, you find that you can be gaslit or you can start gaslighting yourself, which speaks to this questioning of your own reality where you're like, I'm doing something wrong and you lose 
the context that you're in, you, you lose the sense of the water that you're swimming in because you're so busy, you know, fixated on, on blaming yourself on, on what you're doing. So it's just, it feels so daunting. And I recognize that, but what's also more daunting, especially as a woman of color and other, other identities that people can hold where they're constantly undervalued, constantly and intentionally underrepresented in their workplaces, it's daunting to be doubting yourself every single day. It's daunting to face this chronic bias and chronic discrimination in every single conversation, every single meeting that you have, that is daunting. And to look at yourself as the problem is daunting. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I will always choose to understand like what is happening around me before I join the line of blaming myself for my own marginalization. I so appreciate you saying all this. And that's why the title of the first article really grabbed my attention of Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. When I read that title and then I read the article, I I got to thinking about some of what you've just been saying. And I've certainly had conversations about imposter syndrome with all kinds of people over the years and especially the last few years. But when I reflect on those conversations, almost all of them have been with women or women of color uh, where that has come up. And uh, I think that that is, that is not an accident by any means, um, evidence of everything you've just said. And one of the things I appreciate in the article is, is uh, you and Rachika share some of your own experiences too. And one thing that you say is that those who experience imposter syndrome, uh, women especially, it's, it's often a, a death by a thousand paper cuts, I think is the language used in the article. And you talk a bit about your own experience in the article. Could you tell us a bit more of just how you've experienced that in the workplace when you think about this? Yes. You know, I'm so grateful since the COVID-19 pandemic began, I started working for myself and these death by a thousand paper cuts, I personally haven't felt since I removed myself from, you know, quote unquote, traditional, you know, white collar workplace environments. So if I can go into the way back machine, not to say that my life is free of racism and sexism when it comes to my profession, that is not true, but you know, I'm not faced with it as much, which is such a relief. And I think speaks to why so many women, particularly black and Latinx women are leading in the new businesses that get started every year, you know, that with the context of the environments that gaslight us and create the sense of imposter syndrome in our workplace, this desire to flee it, you know, to try to have some sense of self and an ability to thrive professionally. And so, you know, over the course of my career and even further back than that, I've been going to predominantly white institutions since I was in the sixth grade. So maybe like around 11 years old and you just get taught that the way you show up is not enough or not accepted or weird or too contentious and uncomfortable for other people. And professionally, this has mostly shown up for me as being quieted or tempered if I ask too many questions. Now, just imagine being in a meeting and feeling like you're not able to speak, or if you say anything, 
you know, you have to put so many positive things before it and just bury the question. And next thing you know, you don't even know what you're saying in the first place. You know, like I, I cannot tell you how many times I've been reprimanded for asking questions when in many cases, the fact that I can ask really good questions is why I'm great at my job. You know, I was always the person that people wanted to, hey, here's my multi-million dollar grant proposal. Can you please look at it and just like redline it until the absolute end of it, you know, and make sure that it's really, really strong and feel free to restructure and do this. And I've done that labor. I've done that work for people. And then when I bring that same sensibility into a meeting, when it's not convenient for them, when it questions them, then I become difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. And then when I try to advocate for myself, you know, I had a manager who once told me that I was playing the race card when I highlighted that how I was being treated was very consistent with the way women of color experience work to feel so silenced in that way. And so disregarded for my, my concerns as, you know, my professional environment is really disheartening. And I've had things like, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I've coworkers touch my hair or make comments about my hair or tell me about, you know, the Jamaican woman that they dated in college as if that was supposed to create some sense of community between us. And so it can range for something really just like not even about work, small things like, hey, here's this movie that I saw this weekend that happened to have an all black cast in it. And so that became the thing that they thought they could talk to me about. Right. Mm -hmm. When to me, what that shows is you have no idea how to talk to black people <laughs> and you don't see me as a person. You just see me as this other it just doesn't compute of, of how to connect. And it can range from things that severely limit me from doing my job, you know, having my judgment questioned, having, I had someone hire me for a speaking engagement. And then after they had reached out for me to do that speaking engagement, they then asked for sources and like just additional information of why they should hire me. And I said, no, you, you emailed me, right? Like <laughs> I don't need to prove anything yeah. to you. You contacted me. So why do I need to go through more hoops to secure this, you know, business relationship that I know you don't do for other people. And so I think what I try to do in my work is to show that range that, you know, this type of death by a thousand paper cuts is not just interpersonal. It's not just that one thing that one person said to you that one time when many people are saying these things to you over time and they compound, you know, kind of eroding your sense of belonging, eroding your sense of your personhood because people only see you for the thing that makes you different to them. But it's also baked into how businesses do their work, how they make decisions, you know, how easy was it for them to, you know, one of my former employers to remove me from a project because I was asking too many questions when I am the one specifically who has the skill set to lead this team. You know, it's so easy to make those types of decisions. And what makes it more difficult is that because there's so few people of color and women in position of leadership, 
that, you know, where do you get protected from those types of systemic biases and discrimination? You don't. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all that. I so appreciate you sharing your story with us. And as I reflect on what you just said, the the themes of experiences in the workplace uh, that I have heard from women of color over the last few years are so similar. Uh, obviously, everyone's experience is a little bit different and unique, but the themes are are almost exactly alike. And there's so there's so much more work for us all to do. And that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate the invitation in the articles of what can managers do to do yeah. better. And I'll read one of the the passages that you and Ruchika have written. You say, the onus is on managers with employees from underrepresented backgrounds to spend time understanding that the frameworks determining these standards are already rigged against women, especially women of color, and likely reinforce self-doubt and unbelonging. Managers cannot be considered effective if they can only manage employees who are like them, which is such a powerful statement. And and this really leads us into what can managers do better? And one of the things that you say in the article is individual women spoke to us about how managers could help them overcome feelings of self-doubt by reinforcing their own belief in their abilities and chances of success. And I'm I'm wondering you know, I, th I think a lot of people would hear that and they'd say, OK, that makes sense. But I'm wondering, what does that look and sound like to you? Yeah. So what this equates to me is, does your manager want more for your career than you even think is possible than you can imagine? And I have been the most successful, like have leaped frog in my skill set when I've worked closely with people who wanted more for my career than even I did, you know? Mm. And I feel like women of color don't get that level of sponsorship and mentorship as often as white women or white people of any gender. And that having had that experience for myself really reinforces this as one of these tactics, like, and who do you want this for, right? Like I said, if you can only manage people successfully who are like you, then are you really good at your job if you can't do that for other people? And so what this has looked like for me, I remember one particular situation. I was new at a company and I was really interested in some new work around drones, using drones for the delivery of healthcare supplies in rural areas in sub-Saharan Africa, where we were doing some work. And I just got to the organization, like no one even really knew me. And I just wanted to learn more. Like I just wanted to be a part of that, but I didn't have any, there was no reason for me to be at these meetings, right? Mm. <laughs> and so when I expressed uh, to the head of my department that, hey, I just, I see you have this meeting on your calendar at the Gates Foundation. Like, is there any way I could be a part and I was so junior. And again, like I said, I had no business being there that she told me that I could come and accompany her. I could take notes and listen in and, and not just take the notes of the meeting, but also do what I was good at asking a lot of questions, you know, trying to help push the conversation a bit further than where they were. I personally felt like I had no business being there, but even just an inquiry was enough for her to really take me along and show me more opportunities and bring me along in more opportunities to do more business development work, which was outside of the scope of my job. 
every time in my career, I've met someone who was in a more senior position than me at work, who took me along for what they were doing, helped me shadow, helped me and like being able to shadow their work, explaining things to me, supporting me, advocating for me, putting my name in rooms that I wasn't in and just saw a greater vision than I was even able to see at that time. Now, fast forward from that one meeting, I ended up playing a huge part in a lot of the business development for the organization at that time and continued to have a really close partnership with my department head who ended up being the president of the organization. That type of relationship and access was absolutely instrumental in my career at that company what I was able to learn and what I've been able to do with those learnings, even as I transitioned out of that industry. And so I think if managers are honest (laughs) with themselves, there are a handful of people that report to them that they're doing this work for. And what I want to encourage folks to do is to audit those special relationships that you have at work and see if you're just doing that for people who are demographically similar to you, people who went to your same school, who have kids the same age your kids are. If there's any type of affinity bias that's creating that dynamic, do understand that if you're just reinforcing um, this kind of in-group, out-group, dominant culture, non-dominant culture dynamic in that work, then you're part of the problem. So do that audit and really make a commitment to invest in the careers and opportunities and development of people who are different than you. And the other thing I hear you saying really loud and clear there too is, listen, you made that request a long time ago and your manager listened, heard it and said, yeah, come along, right? And it would have been so different if you hadn't had that opportunity to join in on that meeting. But what a great reminder for us to be paying attention when people do make those asks and requests to then respond in a way that's going to provide those opportunities. And one of the other pieces that you both highlight in the article, too, is that managers who do this well said explicitly that they were there to support the employer, the player they were were having the interaction with. When you were writing about that, what do you think about that? What does that sound like when someone says explicitly that they're there to support them? I think explicit to me is connects to other advice that we have in that article is, can you be honest about how bias is working at your company? Can you be honest about your own biases and your own mistakes and ways that you faltered and being able to support them? You know, can you be vulnerable? Because if you show that to me and show some humility and understanding some blind spots you have in really showing up and are willing to put some skin in the game, like you take on some risk to advocate for me and for what I need, then that that is support, right? There's a lot of work to create that you have to do to create an, an environment where I can feel safe to actually be honest about what I need. And that means you, you have to do some work. You have to know what experiences folks like me might be facing in that company, how there might be some structural and institutional biases that are, are set up against me have some humility in that, be honest with me about that and share your commitment to 
helped me navigate that world. And that means that you have to put some risk in on for yourself. So that's a lot to be captured and explicit, but that's what I'm looking for. So I know that this is a safe space for me to be honest about what's happening and what type of support I actually need. Thank you for all that. It is one other point in the article that I thought was so key for managers. And you discuss the the importance of redirecting perceptions when it's two managers having a conversation about one of the employees and hearing one person frame something in a very different way than you might frame their experience or their skills or their talents. When you're thinking about teaching managers how to do that well, what does that look like? The language that I provided in that article is really personal to me because it's something that I wish people did for me in my career. And I often wonder what my career would have looked like if I had more people advocating for me and shifting these perceptions, right? So in professional life, you're constantly managing perceptions and how someone feels about you, whatever biases they might hold impacts that perception. Um, I think about, there was a, a cartoon cover of The New Yorker many, many, many years ago, I think 2007 or 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president in the United States. And the way they had created this caricature of Michelle Obama with this huge Afro and stuff. And I, I raised that because, and we talked about hair previously, one, Michelle Obama does not wear her hair that way. And so what were you trying to communicate in portraying her with an Afro? I raised that because for so long, and there are court cases about this, that even how someone styles their hair at work, something so arbitrary can impact your impression of their value, of their work ethic, of their quote unquote professionalism. And when you have, you know, more natural hairstyles like afros, like braids, like dreadlocks, what have you, these are negatively evaluated in many predominantly white work environments. And so just even thinking about that, like your hair <laughs> can change how someone views you and what opportunities you can have. So then extend that further into how you actually show up in your job, in your actual work. And that perception of look at this black woman with her Afro, she's so aggressive. She's so assertive. She's so difficult. Mm. You know, it's hard to work with her. And for me, I'm like, where are you getting that from? Where, where are you getting that from? I just spent the last 30 minutes talking to you about snow conditions for a snowboarding this weekend. And that is what you get <laughs> that I'm too aggressive and assertive and whatever. And so what I hope is that people can leverage the bias that they have for each other, right? You have an affinity for people or might respect them more if they're at your same level, right? So managers to managers, or maybe if they have some, you know, demographic affinity with you as well. And when you're in those private rooms, when you're by the water cooler, when you're in your Slack channels or what have you, and you're chatting about your team and you're, you're chatting about 
different workers and folks that you're interacting with. Can you find space for that in your allyship, in your advocacy and in the fundamental elements of your job in advocating for your team members? And so for me, when I know that as a black woman, I walk around in my professional life with such negative stereotypes of aggression, anger, too assertive, too dominating, whatever it is. Can you, as the person who's actually in that room, who understands that these words, contrarian and whatever, are connecting to these stereotypes, right? These long proven and studied stereotypes and the experiences of folks of color in the workplace. When you know that, when you hear the signal of that, can you pivot those perceptions? Oh, assertive? Jodi Ann's assertive? She's contrarian? I mean, I wouldn't describe it like that, but I love when she pushes back. Like, uh, I always know where I stand with Jodi Ann. Mm, nice. Every time we're in a meeting and everyone's like, yeah, that's great, that's great. And Jodi Ann just kind of looks off to the side. I know that she wants to say something. And I can always trust that we're on the right track when I have Jodi Ann in the room because she's not afraid to go against groupthink. She's going to challenge us. And that's 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 how I know that this project's going to be better. Mm. I want to leverage that. I wouldn't even call it fearlessness, but leverage that courage in her speaking up and advocating for her position. I want to leverage that to make this work better. That's the work that you do as a manager. Like that's what allyship actually looks like. It's actually you doing your job. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I so appreciate you sharing all of this and there's so much more in the articles. So we'll be linking up to both of them in the episode notes, of course, in this week's weekly leadership guide. Speaking of transformation, I want to highlight one other thing that you're doing as part of your professional work is your podcast, Black Cancer. I don't know a single person whose life isn't touched by cancer in some way. And I think that for those whose lives have been touched and are currently facing um, cancer in some capacity, either themselves or for others, um, would you mind sharing a bit about uh, what the podcast is about and 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 what folks might want to uh, engage with if it's resonating with them? Absolutely. And thanks for the opportunity to speak more about it. So Black Cancer is the name of the podcast. You can find it wherever you're probably listening to this podcast. Uh, Just search for Black Cancer. And every episode is a conversation between me and one other person that talks about how cancer has impacted their lives. They could be cancer survivors, currently uh, patients, They could be the loved ones of people who uh, battled cancer or lost their lives to cancer, caregivers, because as you said, even if you yourself haven't navigated cancer, like it, it wasn't in your body, you know someone, you love someone who has um, been touched by cancer. And and as a result, you as well. I don't think you can go through cancer and still be the same person. Mm. And so I really appreciate that work because it gives us the opportunity to talk about our lives, what we've learned, how we reflected on that experience, what we would hope for our loved ones and other people just just on our own terms. It's a long form storytelling format of, of the podcast. And it's just an opportunity to really just sit and understand the nuances of people's experiences. What I've found in folks who've um, reached out to me as a result of, of listening to the podcast is if you've been impacted by cancer or any type of health crisis, 
there's something in there for you on just how to show up for yourself and how to show up for other people. I think it's critically important that, you know, you and I are even mentioning this on this podcast because most of the people that I talk to at some point have to navigate the decision to inform their employer or their manager about what they're dealing with. If they themselves are dealing with a diagnosis and treatment or they are the caregiver of someone, it has a huge intersection with our professional lives. And I think our workplaces could be so much stronger if we gave more space to understand the very real things that people are dealing with and what they're working in the context of. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing this, and we'll link up to it in this week's notes and guide as well, of course. Uh, Jody Ann, one last question for you. You've been uh, really helping organizations and leaders work more effectively, think about the intersections of, of race and culture and equity in so many different ways over the last year or two. I'm curious, what's something that you've changed your mind on? <laughs> something I've changed my mind on, I had this idea of allyship and different types of allies and what allyship actually is. Um, I talk about what does it mean to be a lazy ally, right? Someone who believes that they have values, but they don't actually know anything or do anything or risk anything in service of those values. There are a bunch of folks who are secret allies who will absolutely send you a Slack message or send you an email saying, I don't believe that person said that thing to you in the meeting, but they were also in the meeting and said nothing, you know? I talk about opportunistic allies and performative allies that are only leveraging a moment to do something and really find myself advocating for true allies, people who have an unselfish and sustaining alignment between their values, what they know, what they do, and what they risk. And then I read a, an older article from Roxy and Gay. And in this article, she writes, she's an author and essayist. She wrote, Black people do not need allies. And I'm like, okay, Roxanne, you just blew up my whole situation. Mm. <laughs> but she continues on to say, quote, we need people to stand up and take on the problems born of oppression as their own without remove or distance. We need people to use common sense to figure out how to participate in social justice. And what that's helped frame up for me is that allyship isn't just a nice thing to do. You know, it's how you show your values, what have you. It's your job. It's actually your job. And so if you're not doing your work as a manager or as a leader with that lens of social justice with that lens of equity, then you are fundamentally, foundationally ill-equipped for that job. Jody Ann Burry is the author of Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome and End Imposter Syndrome in Your Workplace, both found in Harvard Business Review. Jody Ann, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much.
If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes you may want to check out. You heard Jody Ann suggest that managers can help by reinforcing an employee's belief in their abilities and their own chances for success by listening for what people are asking for and also leaning in where people are silent. Can't think of a better way to do that than to have better and more consistent career conversations with others. We tackled that in detail on episode 370, Three Steps to Great Career Conversations. Russ Lairway joined me, and we talked through how to actually have a conversation about someone's career. So many of us intend to do that. We want that from the people who manage us, and yet almost none of us ever receive training on how to do that, a step-by-step process of exactly where to begin on episode 370. I'd also recommend episode 398, What You Gain by Sponsoring People. Julia Taylor Kennedy, who's a leader at Coquil, joined me to talk about the recent research and what uh, leaders are doing differently from just mentoring, which of course we've all heard the benefits of mentoring over the years, but now starting to make the shift, at least with some people that you are mentoring to begin to sponsor. The distinction between those and why it's so important to begin leaning in on sponsorship. Episode 398, a great compliment to this conversation. And then of course, I'd recommend the recent episode with Minda Hartz, episode 552, The Way Managers Can Be Champions for Justice. We heard echoes of that message in this conversation as well. A wonderful compliment to this. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you have your free membership set up, you can search our entire episode library by topic. A couple of the areas that this episode is going to be filed under is organizational culture, diversity and inclusion, and influence. I've had many episodes over the years on all three of those topic areas, plus many more. If you are coming to the show for maybe the first time, or maybe you've just started listening recently, one great way to go back into the past library is not necessarily to go chronologically, although you certainly can, but instead to look at what's important for you right now. And for those in your organization, set up your free membership, find those topics inside the episode library, and start there. That way it's relevant to your development and to your organization right now. When you do that, you're going to get access to the entire library by topic, plus the entire catalog of free audio courses inside the website my database of all the resources I've been finding for you over the years and send out in the weekly leadership guides, all the member casts, plus a ton more inside the membership. It's entirely free, and it'll give you access to the weekly leadership guide that comes out every week over email. That always includes the relevant notes for every episode, some of the things I've been finding from other uh, leaders in the space and Uh, folks in media that are surfacing ideas that I think are useful for us and some of the business news that's going on that really helps us all to continue to stay relevant in context of what's most important. All of that just by going over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. You'll be off and running in just a few seconds. Next week, I'm glad to welcome David Schoenthal to the show. He is going to be looking at helping us to overcome the resistance to new ideas in our organization. So much of leadership is about introducing change and new ideas. And how do we help to combat the resistance? We often get to that. Details on that next week. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you Monday with David.